Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Dr. Raj Podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board-certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. Now, what is this a podcast about? It's about wellness, about health, about being a good person. Sometimes it's about interesting stories and cases. But you know what the most important thing about the podcast is? It actually is just helping people. Helping people that have really common ailments that you know, it just stinks to have, and it kind of screws up their lives every day, and they wish, oh, I wish I had an answer for this, or I didn't have to deal with that. And when I was thinking about what is something that everyone is a little frustrated about, it's got to be joint pain, right? So today on the podcast, I have an official rheumatologist to help us out here. Now, I just didn't pick any rheumatologist. I wanted someone that brings the best of both worlds, has university training, but is also in the trenches, because I think it's one thing to have the knowledge, but it's also important to how to talk to patients and how to deal with patients. So I'm going to read my little bio about our guest today, and her name is Michelle Kulai, Dr. Michelle Kulai. And Dr. Kulai is a board-certified physician in internal medicine and rheumatology. So that means she is double board certified. She completed her internal medicine residency in one of my favorite hospitals in the whole world because I did a little training there, which is going to be uh, Columbia University's St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital. Now, they don't call it that anymore because everything's getting bought up by these big corporations, but I love Columbia University's St. Luke's Roosevelt. She did her fellowship in, ooh, the University of Pennsylvania, UPenn, uh, a very Ivy League. And during her training, she received numerous awards, including Fellow of the Year. Uh, she got the Amgen Pfizer Rheumatology Fellowship Training Award. Um, and she's an assistant professor at the University of Southern California, where I am right now, go Trojans. But she currently works at PIH Hospital. Um, her areas of interest include bone health, muscular skeletal ultrasound, and medical writing. Now, speaking of that, she is the volume editor, series editor, co-creator of the greatest medical book in the history of medical books called Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls, which is our medical book. And other things that she has is that in her free time, she's an avid runner. She, oh, I can't believe, I think I kind of bullied her into putting this. She loves spending time with her three children and her husband, which is me. And that's why the best guest in the whole world is Dr. Michelle Kulai. Thank you for being here. How are you doing, Michelle? I'm great. Thank you for the awesome introduction. <laughs> did you like that? That's exactly what I did for Bob Saget when it was his turn. You know? <laughs> <I> love it. <laughs> so anyways, hey, I got some questions here, Michelle. We're going to do the meet and greet. I know you, but you know, the, the, the listeners of the Dr. Raj podcast don't. So... Huh. Rumor has it that you are maybe, no, maybe it's not the right word, 
a musician. And how do I know that? We have a piano in our house. Um, so where did you get into playing piano? And when did you start learning it? How did you, what was your influence to that? Yeah, well, I started when I was in elementary school and uh, I always really loved piano. I thought it was um, classical music is always really relaxing and just calming. And so um, and and I, I really enjoyed the challenge of um, learning different pieces and working to um, to become better at something. And so I kind of it developed then and then um and you know now with like busy life and family life and everything i don't get to play as much and um but definitely as i was growing up and even through residency like i i definitely you know really enjoyed um it was a great it's a great hobby now i got to like just ask you so i know your family obviously and there there are a bunch of doctors there so are you trying to convince me when you were growing up that your dad loved him and all your family wanted you to be a, a musician? Like, where does you becoming a doctor fit into all this? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, no, I think we definitely don't have any musicians in the family. Um, and a lot of our family, everybody is a doctor, doctor, engineer, um, and and so i think it was definitely growing up i just grew up in a household where that was the norm was just uh medical conversation and um you know answering phone calls uh taking care of other people um and so i think it was something that i you know i really i, I admired um about my dad um and you know other relatives and family we have that, that are in medicine and but i i you know wanted to decide for myself what i wanted to do um so i i did follow my own interests and that's where i kind of explored things like um piano and music and i thought that was something that i wanted to do um for a while and then um and then also you know trying other interests to to really see decide for myself whether I wanted to do medicine for me, not because, you know, somebody expected me to do it. So I know in the end point, I know you went to med school, but let's just take a, a quick detour. So, you know, when you went to college and I, you went to, you know, University of Maryland, you know, I don't know, your whole family loves those terrapins for some reason. No, it's a great college. <laughs> what did you pick for your major? I mean, did you do music? Did you do Latin and Greek studies? What did you do for your major? No, I think by the time I was in college, I, I, I knew that like, I, I have, it was good to have other interests, um, including music. And, um, but I, I did really on my own develop, um, kind of knew what I wanted to do and, and knew that I wanted to go into medicine. And, and so, you know, yeah, I did, I was a neurobiology and physiology major. Um, I, I minored in Spanish, um, <laughs> interestingly too, cause I, I knew that that would probably come in handy, which, it, which, you know, definitely in practice now, it is very helpful. Um, you know, being in Southern California and being able to speak Spanish, I think it really helps a lot of people um, in my current practice. So I'm really glad that I, I, you know, continued with that. But, but yeah, I think it was really just, you know, heavy with all the math and science and organic chemistry and all of those um, classes that everybody goes through when they're going to become a doctor. Sure. You know, so, hey, before we jump into where you are now, I ask this of all my guests, especially the ones that, you know, did the med school route. So we have a lot of listeners who are med students. So be honest, because I can, I'll speak up. What was your worst class or rotation in med school and what was your best? Hmm, that's hard to say. I think uh, when I think of med school, you know, the classes... Like, I really enjoyed anatomy lab. I think that was oh. like, there was just, I thought it was really challenging, but it was also just like, it was really, it's such a new novel experience being able to like actually, you know, learn anatomy in, <laughs> in a very hands-on way. Um, and sometimes it was frustrating. I will be honest about that, that, um, but but I, I found that it was just like one 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 class that always sticks out in my mind. And 
can't forget the smell either. The <laughs> and we would always say, like our, our class, we would always say that what is it about formaldehyde that makes makes you just hungry? <laughs> and we would like go to anatomy lab and then like for a couple hours and then we'd, like work up an appetite, which is kind of gross, but um, but everybody always said that. Um, but but I think I, I enjoyed that. Um, I you know I don't know that I had a least favorite. I'd have to really think about that. Um, wow. I could say that like like my second year of med school was probably my least favorite because I think that that's all just you're very. I felt I remember just sitting in my room just like studying all the time. It was just yeah. so much studying. It was like you know like you're kind of. I was pretty sedentary then too because it was just like you're constantly trying to keep up with all like the volume of information that you need to try and learn. So, um, so I think maybe not least favorite subject, but I think like maybe least favorite year because <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember like going okay. out much. <laughs> so let me kind of like parlay your first answer with my next question that, you know, if you like anatomy and bones and muscles and organs, why didn't you go surgery what made you feel like internal medicine which don't get me wrong i'm internal medicine everyone and that's the greatest you know residency in the whole world why did you do that then uh well i i knew that i didn't you know i didn't really want i think i i I didn't feel in my heart that i could see myself as a surgeon um and i really liked the more like the more cognitive cerebral specialties. Um, And I chose internal medicine because I wasn't quite sure at that time exactly, you know, what I wanted to do, but I knew that going into internal medicine, there's a lot of options. There's a lot of, you know, routes. There's a, so if, even if you're not a hundred percent sure what you want to do, there's like a million different options kind of once you get into that specialty. There's different subspecialties. You could yeah. do primary care. You could do inpatient. You could do outpatient. There are um, specialties within internal medicine where you know you can be doing more procedures, but not necessarily you know go the surgical route. So I just I like that, and I, I think that like gave me time to really kind of just figure out exactly what I want to do. Um, so that's really I thought that would be a good fit for me initially. Well, I think you kind of stole my answer for that one because that's mm-hmm. what I said too, you know, and obviously to my listeners, I went into the lungs, but, you know, my wife went into rheumatology. So what part of rheumatology attracted you to say, I want to do, I want to do that the rest of my life. So why rheumatology? Yeah. You know, rheumatology, it's a really cerebral specialty. That's, and, and that a lot of everything I do, so much of what I do is taking a good history, taking a detailed history, being very detailed oriented, putting that together with physical exam, putting that together with any diagnostic testing. And it's, I'd like that feeling you're like constantly putting jigsaw puzzles together. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that's, I, that's the analogy. I give that to patients. Um, but I think in my mind too, I think it's, um, I like that sort of cognitive ch- challenge. Um, and the fact that, you know, even with each diagnosis, each person is different. And so I'd like the variety and what I see. Um, I love being a part of a lot of all the new drugs that there's so many new drugs and treatments that are coming out. So it's, it's exciting being a part of that. Um, but I also, you know, like to, um, I like, you know, building long-term relationships and, you know, it's, it is medicine's hard now. You, you know, it's not like, you have you you know there's a lot of um volume of what you need to see but even with that you do get to build relationships um you know in like my appointment times for example you know it's like my follow-up appointments they're all 20-minute appointments um so you do get to spend time and a lot of that is because i need to you know a lot of getting history um and that helps my assessment and coming up with a good treatment plan. So there's a lot of dialogue that you get to have with patients. So you, you do build relationships with them over the long term. So you're already going into like what you do and your job. So let me let me mm-hmm. step back and ask this question. Like, you know, when you first finished your training, you went right to a university setting, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, take a side note and tell everyone this, who's going to be in any job, including medicine. Your first job is rarely going to be your last. You know, you learn so much good things and bad things from your experiences. So, you know, you worked at USC and you still come back here and do a lot of teaching for the fellows. But now you work for PIH, kind of more of a private practice setting. 
what what is the big difference between seeing your patients at a university setting versus what you do now? Um, well, I think that, well, number one, I think it's a really hard decision. One of the most difficult decisions for me when I was finishing fellowship um, of deciding whether or not to stay in academics or in to go into private practice, you know, there's not a right or wrong. It's just, it's a very individual decision and it depends on you know, what each person's individual's goal, goals are. And I think like I have colleagues in training where, you know, they knew they wanted to be clinical researchers. They wanted to be in the forefront. They needed and wanted to be in an academic setting to be able to pursue their kind of um, being a physician scientist, so to speak, um, or clinician researcher. And I knew for me, like I always wanted to, to really be a clinician. And just to be um, helping people in that way. And that's what I always envisioned myself as. And so um, I think in, it was good to start out in the academic setting because you get to see a lot of the zebra cases, we call them. So like the more complex, difficult um, diseases, stuff that you don't routinely see in a kind of um, routine private practice out in the community. Um, so I think it's, it helps to build um, a lot of the clinical skills and feeling really comfortable handling um, and um, really challenging cases. But I think ultimately, you know, it's all about, for me, it was work-life balance. And, and I think that being in the setting that I'm in right now, I think it allows me to feel like I'm able to be doing a good job at my job and providing um, great care because the setup is, is really structured very well where I'm at right now to be able to provide the level of care that I want to, but I'm also available at home. And I think that that's all kind of just this, this work-life balance that was really important for me. So, um, so it just depends. Each person's different. And, and I, think it's, um, I think if you're trying to decide what route you want to go, sometimes you just don't know if it's going to be the right fit till you just do it. Yeah. And you experience yeah. it. So that was, I just kind of made the decision. I wasn't sure, like even each position that I took, I wasn't sure, is it the right one for me? But you just don't know until you try. You know, and you kind of led to my, my last meet and greet question. And, you know, I think talking about the work-life balance and let me just throw my two cents in there. Like I always do, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. And sometimes you just got to take the plunge. So I have a lot of listeners who have kids who are going to have kids who are getting married. So how is it being a mom of three, three amazing kids, you know, and being a full-time physician? Um, do you have any, and maybe answer this question for my, for my med students and residents who are going that route. And, and is this more challenging than you thought? Or do you think that, Hey, this is, this is what I was meant to be. Well, I think it's, you know, um, uh, number one, I think that there's never a perfect time to have to start a family when you're in medicine. And there's always you can always come up with a reason why I could wait, I could wait, I could wait. But I think that ultimately, for me, I knew, like, that was, you know, that's something that was really um, important for me. And so I think that, you know, you kind of you, do, you can only plan so much. Some of it you know, we, we call our household daily improv because <laughs> sometimes like it's, or, it's organized, like as organized as can be, but you also kind of have to think on the fly and you can't plan everything perfectly. And I think it's just like kind of going into it being like, I'm going to figure things out as I go along. Everything always works out as you probably, you would always tell me that's your, your motto, which <laughs> is now my motto. But I think it's just doing your best as you go along. And if there's something not working, then you kind of try and troubleshoot to figure out like strategies to kind of find that balance. And it's not easy and it's always a work in progress. Um, but I think it's something about what makes you happy. And I think that, you know, choosing to be, you know, being able to, to give it my all at work, I think it means you have to have the, the support set up for your family at home on the, on like the times that you're not there. So I think that that's really kind of what I do. Like the, the days that I'm working, I'm like 100% fully, you know, that's where I work. I work at 150% every day. Um, and that's really what it takes to be able to feel, you know, I'm doing my best at home and I'm doing my best at, at work. And you don't need me to give you all this. You're right. But it's the truth. I mean, if you didn't do your job so well, I wouldn't have the chance to do the Dr. Raj podcast and have you as a guest. So you're amazing. So we're going to switch the theme now. 
let's help some people out there, okay? So this is about arthritis. So let me ask you the, the main question, Dr. Kulai. I mean, what is arthritis? Um, well, you know, that, that's a very important question. And I think the general public, um, you know, not most people are not aware that there's different types of arthritis. And, um, you know, arthritis, these are conditions that lead to um, inflammation or sometimes damage to the joints, and they can lead to pain. And so, you know, the way I describe it in my practice is that there's two main categories. So the most common type of arthritis we think of is something called osteoarthritis. And that's the type of arthritis, everybody will get it in some way, shape or form as we get older. So we typically see that type of arthritis starting around age 50. That's what the biggest risk factor. And we can't do anything about that, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But um, the other biggest uh, risk factor is increased body mass index, BMI, being overweight or, or, or obese. And that we can control. And so this type of arthritis occurs due to a natural wearing out process of the cartilage, which is a fundamental component of our joints um, and other elements that uh, are necessary for healthy joint function. And so due to this wear and tear arthritis that occurs with time and with use, which can affect multiple different joints, this can lead to varying degrees of, of pain. Sometimes it's mild discomfort. Sometimes it's severe, persistent pain. Typically, it's worsened with, uh, with activity, with prolonged standing, prolonged walking, colder weather, very normal, and can be associated with things like stiffness in the joints for a short while in the mornings when waking up. This type of arthritis does not cause damage to the joints, and that's the important part to know. And so with osteoarthritis, it's, it's um, still very symptomatic, different um, strategies to help manage the pain symptoms. Um, that we that we use, and now this is in contrast to other types of arthritis, which we sort of lump into the general term inflammatory arthritis. But sort of the the most common type of inflammatory arthritis that everybody's probably heard about is something called rheumatoid arthritis. But most people are not aware that this is completely different than just regular garden variety arthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis. This has nothing to do with age. So children can get it um, as well as older individuals can get it. And this is what we call an autoimmune disease. What do I mean by that? These are conditions where uh, the cells in our body, our immune system, for reasons that science can't perfectly explain why it happens, but uh, it's like the, the cells are accidentally attacking the joints and the body and cause very different type of symptoms and completely different type of arthritis. And so these types of arthritis, this is where the jigsaw puzzle analogy that I mentioned <laughs> comes into play. In rheumatology, there's never one you know, blood test or, or diagnostic test that I can ever hang my hat on to make these diagnoses. It really is a careful individual assessment making diagnoses such as rheumatoid arthritis, as well as other autoimmune diseases the treatments are very, very different than regular regular arthritis. So these are commitments to targeted chronic immunosuppressive medication, to steroids, and it involves continued follow-up and reassessment and really kind of a long-term commitment to, to certain treatments to manage not only the symptoms of, of joint pain, joint stiffness, and joint swelling, but they're also necessary in order to prevent any potential damage to the joints and the body from these systemic inflammatory diseases. <laughs> Man, I can't believe you just answered all that. You're amazing. So mm-hmm. now, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot because there are some medical students listening. So number one is that I always get confused with terminology, you know, and, you know, I was always taught that arthritis does come in two main flavors, inflammatory and non-inflammatory. Now the word itis, itis means inflammation. So it is called osteoarthritis, but many times in med school, uh, it's taught as a non-inflammatory disease. Is that a misnomer, Dr. Kulai? Is there inflammation in osteoarthritis? That's a really great question. Um, I love that you asked that. It's, um, so 
Perhaps, you know, yeah, with itis, you could say maybe misnomer, but also, you know, it's not associated necessarily with the systemic inflammation that we see in conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. So um, some of the systemic markers of inflammation would not be associated, for example, like the SUD rate, like the C-reactive protein being elevated. But there are a lot of um, basic science literature that identify that there's local inflammation there, okay. whether it's on MRI or a lot of um, markers uh, that are used in basic science that we don't necessarily check or utilize in clinical practice. But point being that there are studies that show there's definitely local inflammation. And so I think it's perhaps, perhaps it is appropriate to, to keep that word okay. and, and give it the itis at the end, <laughs> indicating inflammation, but kind of with that caveat that it's not necessarily the systemic inflammation. Well said. Now, now here's the other one. You mentioned a little bit about joint pain in the morning. And anytime I'm giving a lecture to med students, and I say morning stiffness, you know, they're laughing because they just have evil minds. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, but mm-hmm. what was taught in medical school was that if you have one of these inflammatory morning stiffness, it lasts for quite a while versus maybe an OA, not so much so. So my question to you, Dr. Kulai, is, is a history of morning stiffness uh, a good marker of being inflammatory or not, or is it just mm-hmm. we learn in med school and has no clinical utility? Well, you know, I think that's a good question. So I actually take the time in practice to explain to patients how would I typically expect to see somebody with rheumatoid arthritis present? Because I think that's important to know it's not each individual item that I'm looking at. I kind of use these again, each is each item of um, information, such as asking about stiffness in the joints in the morning, that's a tiny puzzle piece. I can't hang my hat on it, but I think that's something that I utilize in conjunction with all the other questions that I ask, plus physical exam, plus the labs. And then I take a bird's eye view and I really make an overall assessment. And so, you know, I explain to patients the way I go through and I, I handwrite all of this down because our diseases, they are not straightforward. And you have to find a way to explain it to people where it's, um, you know, it's digestible, where they can understand, they need to understand why am I having you start a lifelong medication? So we have to be on the same page and um, in that way. So I explained that, yeah, so stiffness in the joints in the morning, there is a subset of people with RA or any inflammatory arthritis where morning time is the worst where they have to set the alarm clock for two hours before they have to be somewhere because it takes their body just so long to get warmed up, to get ready to go, to be able to go to work, to be able to do their activities of daily living and and executive function and all of that. But it's not everybody. I have people with with definite RA that just happen to, to not be, that's not part of their symptoms, that it's not, you know, and that doesn't mean they don't have it. But it means that, you know, that's just part of their profile. And again, like I said, that each person's assessment's different. Even with a, each person with RA, you might learn in a, you know, when you're studying for an exam or in a textbook that, yes, these are some traditional signs and symptoms um, that you learn. But then when you're out in practice, you realize that not everybody's the same. And, and, and it's good to just, you know, have um, an awareness of that so that you don't, don't miss diagnoses just because they don't have you know, more than an hour of stiffness in the joints in the morning, like we learn in a textbook. All right. Wow. So I'm going to give you the outline of my remaining questions. So there's going to be two OA questions and two RA questions, and then we'll go from there. I might have to bring you back again because you got so much knowledge. So let's, let's talk about OA first, then we'll go to RA to be organized. So my first question is for osteoarthritis, I always wonder, how do you make that diagnosis? Is it kind of like, oh, you're old and overweight, used to play football, so you have OA? I mean, how, how, how do you go about making an osteoarthritis diagnosis? Um, so osteoarthritis, it's a diagnosis that can be made clinically. Um, oh, so, okay. Yeah, so you don't necessarily need imaging, for example. And there's some people that, you know, that yes, that they walk in and it's, it's very straightforward, but there's other people where, you know, it's, 
it's not straightforward. And so sometimes people can have osteoarthritis plus rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, sometimes, sometimes they can have osteoarthritis plus rheumatoid arthritis plus fibromyalgia. So, I mean, it really is, sometimes it's straightforward, sometimes it's not. And so that's where there is this art of medicine and, um, and really kind of carefully trying to listen to symptoms and evaluate and, you know, like, a, and be investigating. But typically, yes. So what I, I think of, I do look at age. I think that does factor in. So if I see a 20, 22 year old in the office, <laughs> that's not really something that I'm going to be thinking about. Right. Um, there are certain like very rare genetic conditions where they can develop very early osteoarthritis, but that would be highly, highly unlikely in you know routine practice. So age is definitely something I look at. Um, I also look at the distribution overall, what joints are bothering you. And so I always kind of ask about what specific areas. So osteoarthritis affects, it can affect the hands. There's a specific distribution it affects the distal interphalangeal joints. Um, the I don't think anyone inter- knows what that is. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, we do have some medical students. So, so, but, but I think that uh, it can affect the, the hand. So sometimes okay. the base of the thumb, um, as well as other, other joints in the hands, um, it can affect the spine. Um, so anybody with, with chronic neck and low back pain, there's, you know, conditions called degenerative disc disease um, uh, that kind of fall into this kind of spectrum of kind of wear and tear conditions. So anyone with chronic neck or back pain, um, hip pain, anybody that comes with hip pain, I always ask uh, where exactly show me where in the hips is it the front of the hip, like in the groin? Is it okay. the side of the hip? Is it the, um, the, the lumbar or gluteal areas? The osteoarthritis does affect the hip, but Remember the, you know, where's anatomically your hip joint, the ball and socket? It's yeah. actually located in the, the pelvic area, the groin. Okay. So typically people with primary osteoarthritis of the hips, they present with groin pain radiating to front of the thigh and uh, knees can be affected in osteoarthritis and occasionally the ankles and the feet. So again, distribution make, is very important when I'm evaluating for, for symptoms. I'm also looking to see in somebody with osteoarthritis, typically um, with activity, you know, their, their um, symptoms will be worse. So um, when they're standing for a while, they're, they're walking, going on, um, they're going to the market, they're on their feet for a longer period of time, they'll notice the pain. So that these are typical hallmarks for osteoarthritis. Um, and individuals that have osteoarthritis in the hands, more use of the hands, like with cooking or chopping vegetables. Um, or just office work, just their day-to-day, they might notice more symptoms. So, um, so I'll definitely be obtaining that from the history. And I'll ask them, do you feel like your joints are stiff in the morning? Sometimes people don't really know the answer to that because that, that might not be something that they're thinking about all the time. Um, so I'll try and kind of gauge if that's something that might be helpful in the history. Sometimes it's not. But then also I, I like to ask, are the symptoms continuous or do they come and go? And so, um, and then also looking at timeline. So how long has this been going on? It really is a lot of careful questioning um, in the history. And based on that is definitely helpful to understand symptoms. So knowing the distribution um, is is helpful. Um, The age of the patient is helpful. Um, And then physical exams. So, you know, osteoarthritis is, the joints are typically not red and inflamed and um, swollen. And they, although there can be swelling occasionally, but there's not the features of warmth and heat and inflammation that I would typically expect to see in somebody with, you know, other types of inflammatory arthritis. So that's kind of in a nutshell, yeah. um, making it kind of some general ideas of the things that I look for um, in evaluating and coming to the diagnosis of osteoarthritis. So let's let's close loop osteo and go into treatment. So let me just interject. Yeah, I think I kind of was chuckling about this, uh, what you're referring to as the DIP. So yes, medical students, uh, Dr. Kulai was referring to the, I believe it's called the Heberdeen's nose of the osteoarthritis patient. So how about that one? Now, for your osteoarthritis patients, I know you could talk forever about therapies, but I mean, how many patients are just happy on what we learned in med school, which is here's some acetaminophen, here's some Tylenol and go on your merry way. And mm-hmm. people end up getting 
a knee and hip replacement? And what would be the most common things you do most of the time? And what are some non pharmacological things? Can you give us a, a, a summary of that, if you don't mind? Sure. So um, number one, things that I always tell patients again, too, is that we don't have targeted drugs yet for osteoarthritis in the same way that we do for rheumatoid. So patients get really excited because they see commercials for all these new um, arthritis drugs on TV. And then they come to me and they say, okay, well, how are you going to treat my arthritis? Because again, everybody thinks that the general public, they, they, they you know, are not aware that there's different types of arthritis. So um, I do kind of have to be the one to disappoint and say, we know those drugs are all immune suppressing drugs. So for your osteoarthritis, I can't use those. Those are not indicated. So there's drugs, there are drugs in clinical trials, um, disease modifying drugs that are in investigation, but it's a huge unmet need. So we don't have a way of stopping it, of reversing it or fixing it. But I think that there are um, conservative routes that we, that we do recommend where people can get at least even partial relief. So at least that's something. So uh, we typically um, do start, de- you know, depending on the location, um, there's some topical treatments that, that can help. Um, so there's topical creams that we have. There are um, conservative uh, over-the-counter acetaminophen, um, as well as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which, which we recommend. Physical therapy is, is another probably underutilized treatment, but is very efficacious if, it's, uh, if a commitment is made. So that's where I tell patients that I'm going to refer you to physical therapy. But the point of the benefit and the purpose of physical therapy is not for you to go just for those four or five sessions and then you're done. But I want you to learn exactly what you need to be doing at home and to be making that part of your daily routine. That's the most important part is that those exercises, that strength training that's taught in physical therapy um, has to be continued at home on your own in order to be continuing to see that partial benefit. And so the idea is that by strengthening the muscles around the joint, that helps to take over the long term, helps to take stress off of the joint. So also by, by maintaining activity, trying to have a healthy lifestyle, healthy diet, that helps to maintain a healthy weight. Again, you know, weight reduction can significantly help with um, decreasing pain, um, decreasing the um, wearing out process in the joints. And ultimately preventing the need for hip replacements, knee replacements, and so on. Nice. Man, you know what? I have so many questions, but let's let's switch gears because I want to make sure we touch base on the inflammatories. All right. How would you explain to the general public for, you know, the patient coming in, what is rheumatoid arthritis? Uh, Dr. Kulai, I mean, how do you explain it so someone could understand it? The diagnosis, I apologize. How do you diagnose it? Sure, sure. So, and these are conversations I have every day because I think that it's it's important to understand again. It it's not it's not an age related arthritis. It is an autoimmune condition, just as I went through um, a little while earlier. So it's not anyone's fault. It's nothing they do to cause it. These are not pure genetic disorders. So these are not. Uh, there's no specific one gene that we can identify that we can um, link it specifically to the likelihood of developing rheumatoid arthritis um, in contrast to other conditions that are pure genetic disorders. So it's autoimmune. So um, somebody with typical rheumatoid arthritis, they present with chronic, persistent, widespread joint pain. So this is not going to be the ache and pain that comes and goes. A lot of people get that. Um, But this is really ongoing day-to-day, not going away, persistent, widespread joint pain. So that's number one. Number two is what is the distribution for rheumatoid arthritis? So six or more joints definitely is going to be lots of different joints that are affected. And the distribution, it affects pretty much a, a lot of the joints, hands, wrists, elbows, shoulders, hips, knees, ankles, feet really at a lot of different places with the exception of the lumbar spine, the low back. So any uh, chronic low back pain is never going to be rheumatoid. Mm. And so I I always mention that. Um, Number next is that it's a symmetric arthritis. What do I mean by that is that it affects both the left and the right side of the bodies 
and mirror images. So it affects like both wrists, both hands, both elbows. So it's, I see, I look and see for that symmetry. Additionally, the stiffness in the joints in the morning is usually well over an hour. So as I was mentioning before, they can sometimes take several hours um, in the morning to just get going and to be able to have the joints warmed up. And sometimes they're just so stiff, as I was saying, that people need to set their alarm clock for hours before they have to be somewhere. And then lastly is that um, on exam, when I examine typical patients with rheumatoid arthritis, they have very swollen joints. So they're boggy, they're squishy, they're inflamed, um, they're warm. And so these are typical, typical findings upon questioning and as well as physical exam are things I look for clinically. Now, there's also certain diagnostic tests that I order. And now, as I was mentioning, there's never you know, one lab test in rheumatology for any disease I take care of that I can hang my hat on and make a diagnosis just based on the labs. But in my overall assessment, there are labs that can be helpful. So there's traditional diagnostic blood tests for rheumatoid arthritis. There's certain markers of inflammation that I look for, the sedimentation rate, the C-reactive protein, and as well as just basic labs and overall assessment of looking at all major organ functions. So um, I really look at all organ systems when I'm evaluating anybody with any inflammatory illness because um, my diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, are not just limited to the joints. We do see other organs that are involved. So I'm kind of looking at everything overall, but putting that all together, um, I make a very individual assessment. There's some people with, the, with rheumatoid arthritis where their labs all look perfect, but the diagnosis is very much there based on classic signs and symptoms. And there's some people where their history and their exam might not be as convincing, but then there's something in the labs that is, is helping me. So it's kind of putting this all together um, and coming up with a very individual assessment. So are you trying to say for my, the medical students and the medical people out there that you could have rheumatoid arthritis and you could be rheumatoid factor negative and something called anti-CCP negative. So all your labs could be negative and you could still have it? Correct. Yes. So I, there's a, about 20, 20 to 30% of patients, they can have this uh, term and you use it exactly correct, is the seronegative uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So okay. I think we have to be careful with that diagnosis. And I even a diagnosis as bread and butter as rheumatoid arthritis, I really want, I really don't want to label anybody with any diagnoses until I really feel that there's enough information to support that making that diagnosis because you can't really take it back, <laughs> you know, once you give <laughs> diagnoses and it, it, there's huge implications of the, any of these chronic inflammatory diseases and and I think you really want to make sure with any condition, any disease, that before you're giving somebody a diagnosis that you really, it's very carefully thought out. Is that the correct diagnosis before I'm giving that diagnosis? So, so I think that, yes, so there are people that can have seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. And so I think, again, it, it's this day-to-day -day in practice of assessing, is it inflammatory pain? Is it non-inflammatory pain? Is it osteoarthritis? Is it an inflammatory arthritis? Is it fibromyalgia? I mean, sometimes it's really very difficult, even in somebody who's been practicing for a long time, that um, some people it is challenging and we continue to, um, to reassess and to think carefully about each person's uh, case and care. Sure. And, and before uh, we do the treatment for RA, and, and then I think we're almost going to be done with that, I want to throw in one important thing. You mentioned a little bit about imaging and you said an osteoarthritis Maybe not imaging all the time. And, you know, one thing I know I personally teach when I do like a board review course is that getting an x-ray of the joint, whether it be RA or O8, it's kind of important. And I think, you know, I wanted to comment on two things. One is for OA, I mean, do you, do you like to see the buzzwords, you know, osteophytes and subchondral cysts and all those things? And does it help getting a, an x-ray for RA to see erosions? So are you getting x-rays almost on any type of arthritis? Am I saying that right or wrong? You know, it really all depends. I don't necessarily need x-rays to diagnose rheumatoid arthritis if all the other parts 
uh, are there. Um, mm-hmm. The history, the exam, the laboratory assessment. But mm-hmm. sometimes if, I, if I'm not quite sure, I might use them. I might order the x-rays to help me in, in the assessment. I don't want to order diagnostic tests if it's not going to help me. And I think okay. that's a good, that's a good take home point for anybody with any, any field. We don't want to be ordering tests if it's not going to be helping with our assessment or our treatment plan. Well said. Um, and, and I think probably when I first started out in practice, I was ordering a lot more x-rays um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because I didn't see as much and I wanted to utilize every little bit of info that I could have. And so but I think that, yes, I think that sometimes it is helpful, but, you know, definitely in those cases where I'm, I'm not quite sure, I definitely, you know, will, will utilize any uh, diagnostic tests and the x-rays. They're quick, they're easy to get. And, um, and sometimes they can be really helpful. Um, so I do, I do utilize them in practice. I think that it just depends on each person's case, but I don't think for, if it's very straightforward, osteoarthritis in the hands, for example, I won't be ordering routine x-rays. Nice. And, you know, I saved the toughest for last question, so I apologize. But I think, you know, I already know what I'm going to do for our next podcast, Dr. Kulai. We're going to do a podcast on just medications in general. But for RA treatment, once you make the correct diagnosis, I know I want to kind of guide us through a more uh, the response. Like, what would be the, the cornerstone therapy for most, for most uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients? And can you comment on just the general term of a biologic? I know that many people heard of that term and do most patients need to be on one or not? Great question. So there are, I could probably talk like hours and hours about rheumatoid <laughs> arthritis treatment. Yeah. So, um, so, but, but really for the purposes of today, I think that um, number one, mentioning that rheumatoid arthritis, it is a commitment to to lifelong medication. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Um, and I think that's a lot to process for many people, especially having a new diagnosis of RA. But I think that mentioning any treatment for rheumatoid arthritis, the goals of treatment are not only going to be improving joint pain, joint stiffness, joint swelling, but remember it's important, necessary to be on treatment to prevent any potential damage to the joints and the body. So these are systemic inflammatory conditions. So number one, you know, we start with conservative treatment. So we have a lot of very, very strong, very effective treatments nowadays. We're very lucky. We have, you know, more than probably close to 30 or more treatments that we have nowadays. Wow. For RA. Um, <laughs> lots and lots. Yeah. But, but we're not going to start with the strongest drugs. But we go in this stepwise approach and we start very conservatively with um, treatments such as methotrexate, which is okay. um, the initial treatment of choice. And we continue to reassess in short time intervals, six weeks, eight weeks, and we follow up, we reassess, and we make sure that that treatment is working and it's tolerated well. We slowly escalate and we increase treatment or we escalate therapy if the conservative drugs are not effective. So. It's a continued work in progress till we get to a point where there's either low disease activity or disease remission. So the medications that we use, methotrexate is, is probably the, 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 it is the first drug of choice. Um, and so I usually start out with that. And there's several other medications kind of in that similar caliber that um, are pretty conservative, but um, we might start, we start out with them. And if patients aren't doing well, then we escalate treatment. So there's uh, drugs like leflunamide, sulfasalazine, hydroxychloroquine. Um, these are some of the milder medications that we might initially start with. And then we escalate to, to other drugs that are in this biologic category if patients are, their arthritis is not responding. Now, historically, when we talk about, you know, the m- milder drugs, um, methotrexate, um, more specifically, the majority of patients, more than half of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, they will ultimately need treatment more than the methotrexate. So I think that, you know, each person's arthritis is different. I don't escalate treatment if it's not necessary. 
but yeah, we're, we're really fortunate to have all of these biologic drugs t- to work with. Now, what do I mean when I say biologic drug? Um, yeah. To your, to your next question. Yeah. So these are immune targeted drugs. So depending on the category of drug, they target different pathways in our immune system and, and target different molecules that are known to affect uh, and improve the symptoms of systemic inflammation in rheumatoid arthritis. So for example, um, there's drugs like adalimumab, Humira, um, Etanercept, Embril, and probably half a dozen others in that same category that target a specific molecule called TNF-alpha. And they, by inhibiting this one um, molecule on that pathway in our immune system, it's targeting the symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis, the pain, the stiffness, the swelling, but it's also preventing damage, again, to the joints and the body. So there's different mechanisms, um, different molecules that are targeted, and there's a lot of different ways that these drugs can work in order to achieve disease remission. Now, it's important to note, too, these are these medicines... They're targeting the immune system. They're not wiping it out. So our immune system is complex. So there's a lot of different molecules. There's thousands of molecules that are working to to keep our immune system regulated. So yes, they are immunosuppressive medications, but I like to think of them as more immune-targeted drugs because the vast majority of people are not developing moderate or severe infections on these drugs. That's something that people need to be aware of whenever they initiate these drugs, but just in utilizing these drugs for a very long time, you know, we're not seeing that in practice. We're seeing um, significant, significant benefit outweighing any of the the potential risks that we're seeing. Man, I got to tell you that, uh, number one, there's not enough time in this podcast. Number two, I got to have you back. I mean, your, your, your questions, oh my God, and your answers... So, hey, everyone listening today, I mean, I got to throw a couple of things out there. Dr. Kulai is going to be coming back to talk about things like lupus or scleroderma or medications for RA. Or what about COVID and, and, and rheumatoid diseases? How's that, everyone? So, Dr. Kulai, would you be nice enough to come back again and, and be on my podcast? Does that sound like a, an option? I would be happy to. You know where to find me. <laughs> and, with, <laughs> and with that being said, you know what I'm going to ask you for the last one. I'm going to ask you this. Is there anything you want to say about your amazing husband? Hey, um, you know, of course, I can't, of course, I can't say enough good things. Thank you for, you know, for always being positive and supportive. And, you know, you can't, you can't be a good doctor and mom and, partner without having a good, um, an awesome, amazing partner in crime. So I'm always thankful for you. I'm, I'm going to pay you when we're off the air. Okay. I hope I didn't say that. <laughs> but um, anyways, <laughs> thank, hey, thank you for being here. You're the thank greatest. Thank you. I and really I'm going to see you again. Okay. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.